This week on the Recruitment Flex, Jason Putnam, CRO at Plum, joins us as a guest co-host. And we talk about, is New York City trying to regulate AI in hiring? There's no lack of supply of candidates. There's just a matching problem. The lies we tell each other as recruiters and candidates. And should talent acquisition own internal mobility? Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Welcome to the Recruitment Flex. I'm Serge. And as always, joined by a better looking, smarter. Oh, what other adjective can I give to you, Shelly? Just keep going. At some point in the show, you will point out that I'm wrong and you're right. You need to redeem yourself, at least in the opening, to butter me up. Because otherwise, I don't know how much longer I can go on by always being told I'm wrong. Oh, well, I'm just mansplaining to you, Shelly. That's <laughs> all it is. And I figured let's bring in another man. So we have yes, men so, mansplaining you, know, you on the show. Thank you, Serge, because I have the honor of introducing a third co-host. And for a change, we have a gentleman and not a blonde woman. <laughs> Let me introduce Jason Putnam, Chief Revenue Officer over at Plum.io, one of my favorite companies. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I have to tell you, Jason, since the last time we talked, I have recommended Plum to three of my clients. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Fantastic. Love the product. I am such a big fan of Plum and not just because you sent me a t-shirt. <laughs> Well, the t-shirt help. It's nice. I wear it all the time. It's high caliber swag. So Jason, what is new at Plum? Because I'm seeing these press releases. I'm seeing different awards that you've won. Anything you want to highlight that's going on in your world? A lot of great things. And and thanks for the accolades. It's a fantastic product with a fantastic team. We already had very high caliber talent. We're bringing some more in. We have a new VP of marketing starting soon. That's a pretty well-known name in the industry. We recently won an emerging tech solution through Lighthouse Research and their HR Tech Awards. You mentioned it, sir, a lot of partnerships, a lot of press releases. Our quarter is on track to probably be our best in, in the last 10 years. We have been graciously included in many an RFP, and up to this point, we haven't lost one. So we have some big announcements coming out about there. So yeah, all exciting stuff. We need a round of applause. I'm curious, Jason, you mentioned emerging tech. Plum has been around for a while. Like, how do you win an emerging tech when you've been around like eight, nine years? It is because what we want it for was uh, our solution on the talent management side. So we've been doing the talent acquisition side for 10 years, to your point. And recently, in the last two years, we did a pilot with a couple of companies who had that realization of, oh, if we can use it on this side, we can certainly use it on this side. And we said, sure, you can. And then we built it with them. So we have many customers now, and actually almost everyone who's coming into Plum as a new customer gets both sides, talent acquisition and talent management. So we want it for the talent management. I'm curious, when it comes to HR tech, timing is so critical if a product's going to hit or not. Are you feeling that? Because you've been in several HR tech companies, and obviously this one's a little bit different than what you've done in the past. Do you think timing is just right for the type of solution that you offer at Plum right now? Yes. And I'm not saying that from a drinking the Kool-Aid perspective. The world is shifting, and we've always said the world is shifting, but it actually has shifted. Plum was a solution ahead of its time. 
if you look at what's going on macroeconomically in, in the world and, and specifically in talent acquisition and talent management, we were certainly built for a post-pandemic world. And I have never worked at a company, and I've worked at many, I've started and, and turned around and sold many a company. I've never worked at a company that has had this much inbound interest, both from potential clients, but analysts and media as well. We're saying no to certain briefings just because we don't have time. We're saying no to certain uh, guest speaking, free guest speaking, not paid guest speaking topics. It's been a very busy five to six months. For our audience that doesn't know Jason, because Jason's a superstar in this industry, what's your deal? What's your Twitter bio? I've been doing this a long time, longer than I care to admit. Uh, I may be the elder statesman on this podcast, actually. Um, Married for 17 years. I have two girls, 12 and about to be eight. Uh, My youngest has special needs. She has Down syndrome. And then I have three dogs, all women, all girl dogs. So it is me and a house full of women. Boy, you and Serge are um, kindred spirits. Serge is all about the girls. Even him agreeing, Jason, to have you come on and co-host. It's a first. Serge loves to be surrounded by women. Oh, we've had men before, but I agree. I'd rather be around women. Jason's the exception, right? Um, Oh, thank you. All right. How about we jump into our recruitment insights for the week? I'll give you the highlights here. So effective in 2023, there's a new law in New York City that will prohibit employers from using artificial intelligence to make hiring decisions. The two prerequisites are the tool has been the subject of an independent third-party bias audit no more than one year prior to its use. And number two, the employer makes a summary of the results of the audit and the distribution date of the tool publicly available on its website. I find this really interesting, guys, right? Because AI has become really dominant in all sectors of the economy, in tech and HR tech. Based on some bad examples of the past, everyone goes back to the story of Amazon creating an AI tool and suddenly it was creating bias based on what they've hired. But we're going back four years and it's given a bad name of how AI can be leveraged in the sense of hiring as a tool and someone that can actually bring up legislation thought this was an issue. And my initial gut instinct is he doesn't know the fuck what he's talking about. There is exception. We can use higher view and how they were leveraging AI. But I think AI is going to be the cure for actually better diversity and helping job seekers. Shelly, I'm going to bounce to you, get your thoughts on what this legislation could actually mean. Is this something we're going to start seeing across the board or is it just New York being New York? (laughs) That is a really good question because I don't know what caused them to pass a law. It's not that pervasive in the pre-screening process. I don't see a vast majority of employers that have moved to any sort of AI screening tools. There had to have been something really catastrophic happen. Do you know, Jason? I don't necessarily know enough to tell you what caused it, but it's not the only law of its kind. California is also working on a very similar law. And everything you said, Serge, is accurate. We're very familiar with the law because we're in the space and we have to make sure we can uh, be positioned. And we actually don't use AI. And I think the definition of AI is a bit of a problem. Many people in the HR tech world are using the word AI when really what they're using is 
machine learning or natural language processing, not true AI. That's a different argument that will probably bore a ton of people. So I don't want to get into that. But most of the law is around screening people out in a testing or an assessment type way. It's around potential medical or mental disorders. That's a big part of that. And a personality assessment won't do that. Obviously, we certainly don't do that. Just speaking from a plumb perspective. And then there's other assessments that do it for hard skills, whereas we do it for those inherent soft skills. But at the end of the day, AI is not good or evil right? It's how you program it, the data that goes into it. And if you put a bunch of middle-aged white people through anything that's AI-based, it's going to become biased. If you put any group through anything and it's a particular cohort that's predetermined to have an answer that comes out, it's going to be biased. I think the most important thing you said there, Serge, it has to be updated constantly and has to have third-party validation. We do that. We have IOs on staff. We're very familiar with the laws that are coming out. Yeah. There's a perspective in the industry or people outside the industry that there's an AI tool that's screening out resumes. And there is certain tools that are resume matching that leverages AI, but it's so small. It's very based on timing. When our recruiter is actually logging into their ATS and see the first resumes on top, and that's how usually they look at resumes. But there's this perspective that AI is screening me out, so I don't have a chance. That's why I'm not getting called back. But the great majority of resumes that are being rejected right now that are coming into ATS are being rejected by a human. I do foresee that changing. But right now, that's not the case. Some of it is what we call career coaches or resume writers that are creating this hysteria of, I have a way to overcome the AI that is in your ATS to get your resume true. It's not true. It's not happening. It's such a small portion. I don't know what your take on that is, Jason. I agree with you. I think it is a small portion. People are reaping what they sow to some extent on the employer side because they say they need more candidates, which they actually don't. A perfect system would be, I post a job, Serge, you apply for the job, you're a perfect fit, I hire you, you're making the exact amount of money you make, you get promoted, you retire, and then I hire the next person. But that's not the world, so you you build these funnel metrics. And what we're saying is, I would need more people at the top of the funnel, but I don't have internal recruiters or the right skill set or or the right time to be able to screen all of those people, which by the way, they are screening it is inherent with bias because they're sorting it A through Z or whatever it may be. It's yeah. Most of it's unintentional. If an AI is screening people out based on potentially where they went to college, where they grew up or what their name is, or male, female, or pronouns, that may inherently be biased. But I think there's another perspective on this, and that is is it okay if you were screened out as a candidate? So there's these hard skills of, hey, I'm the best Java developer and I have this degree and I went here. My hard skills may be a a 10 out of 10 for that company, but how do I know as a human, I'm not going to be miserable in that job? And then how does that employer know that I'm not going to be miserable in that job and leave in six months anyway? Some of the best jobs I ever had are ones I didn't get. What do you mean? Well, because it opened up doors to go other things. It was headhunted in for the conversation and calling people in the industry going, oh, you never want to go work there. Without that perspective, I'm a competitive person. I want the offer. I'm going to take the job. But if I would have gone there and been incredibly miserable, would I have cared if I would have been screened out or screened in? There is some level of automation that you need just based on the volume that people are dealing with today that they're trying to solve. You have to have automation because you're not going to be able to go out and hire 10 more internal recruiters. You're just not. 
So Shelly, do you think AI can be used for good in the recruitment world? When this particular law is describing artificial intelligence, the fear is that artificial intelligence is making the decision and not a person, right? That there's no human intervention and there is no discretionary decision-making being made by a human being. That's what the law here is about. I think there's great algorithms, models, data, but they are tools to help support making the hiring decision and not making the decision for you. The danger is taking the human out of the process and relying completely on technology to make the hiring decision, which is really no different. Even when I look back 15 years ago, companies that were using personality tests to make the final decision on who they hired, it's the most dangerous thing in the world to do. Somebody's scoring a personality test does not determine success on the job. Now, the fear is that it's being automated to the point where we can just step out of the process and let software make the decision for us. Yeah, people always use technology. If we go back to your point, Shelly, 15 years ago, oh my God, I have an ATS. This is the most revolutionary thing in the world. And there was this propensity that people whose last name was A to F got significantly more callbacks. It's just what the recruiters had time to get through. If they would have sorted it Z through A, the opposite would have been true. So inherently, it's not good or evil. It's a data point. Yeah. And you know what we're all trying to do in any funnel metrics is figure out both longitude and latitude. And how do I get closer where I'm not just using my gut or bias, but anytime you make a decision, there's risk associated and reward associated with it. So how can I mitigate all the risks I have to make sure that when I make the decision, my odds are forever in my favor? I, I'm going to make the argument that I don't think it's a bad thing if AI eventually made the hiring decisions instead of people, because we know we have a lot of unconscious bias. We have fucked up for so many years. And Google ran a project where they just hired. They didn't really look at interviewing or anything. And the results were almost identical. If AI can help us connect the right person to the right job and it works out and the success of hiring actually goes up, I have absolutely no issues. That's what technology is for. So taking the human out, I'm not sure it's a bad thing, but I think there is so many advantages of leveraging AI in the overall hiring process to remove bias instead of adding bias if it's done the right way. But artificial intelligence, and I agree with you, Jason, what you mentioned at the start, it's misconstrued. There is natural language processing, there is machine learning, and that is different. We even talk about chatbots being AI. Yes, they can have elements of AI, but it depends on how sophisticated it is. But then we see examples for candidate that actually can make their lives easier. And I saw this article uh, yesterday, actually. Google is launching an AI interview training tool as part of Google's learning program in different skills that you can actually do an interview with an AI tool. And it gives you a rating of how well you've done. If you're repeating words, if you're overusing certain words, it gives you a score of, are you a good interview or you're not? I think we've all done like mock interviews with our friends, especially when we're starting our careers. The feedback's useless. Having a tool to tell you, this is what you need to improve. And it has no bias. It has no other interest. I think is really cool. What was your take on it, Shelly, when you saw that? I actually took it for a test drive. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was super cool. Of course, we do it for a living. So I'm going to have a very different perspective than someone who's got a lot on the line, 
right? I like the fact that it highlights words. I really question where's the AI in this other than it, it transcribes what you've said and then highlights words and gives you another opportunity to practice, but you're not practicing with a human. Getting real-time feedback from a human being is very different than talking to a screen. And you know how I feel about one-way video interviews. So if you're prepping for a one-way video interview, then yes, it'd be really helpful to know that you said, um, how many times? Or did you actually answer the question? But again, we're humans. Even when we record the show, we're on screen because I want to see the look on your face (laughs) and I want to see you nodding or I want to see the shaking your head. Oh my God, I can't believe you just said that. So that's missing for me. We have to be careful to not confuse what AI is. AI needs algorithms, but an algorithm is not AI. My 12-year-old can write an algorithm. Now, it's not going to be as complicated as as what Google just wrote for that or the algorithms we Mm -hmm. used at PandaLogic or things like that. But that's not inherently AI. It's just something that's outcome-based that's a choose-your-own-adventure. AI is going to interpret that data very differently and almost have a a human-like conversation with you. I have not taken it for a test drive, but I, I think it's valuable from a practice perspective and anything we can do to help candidates be better, help them in their career, help them get the job that's right for them is is great. But I don't know if it's the true stand-in for me having a a human-to-human conversation where I'm able to look at somebody I'm interviewing, they're able to look at me. They want to know who I am as a leader. I want to know who they are as as a person as well. Interesting. Let's move along from AI. I think we've talked too much about it. Jason, you have some good insights on what's going on in the labor market. I want to dig into that. Sure. This is a bit of a soapbox for me. If everyone who's listening to the show is either a practitioner or they're in the industry, it's always hard to talk about the job and, and use stories about the job. I think we almost have to change the paradigm to talk about something else that is very similar that has happened, and then we can bring it back to here. What we have now is a significant supply chain shift, not a supply chain problem, but we have a supply chain shift. We don't have a labor problem in the US at least. We don't, because if I said, Serge, I'm gonna pay you $500,000 to go work at McDonald's tomorrow, 99 out of 100 people would say yes. We have a matching and we have a, a wage problem, but we don't have a labor problem. We have enough workers. The question is, they're not working the right job, they're changing jobs, or you as a company are not screening people in who shouldn't be screened in, or you're not paying them enough money. So we don't have a labor problem. If we go back and Shelly, you and I will tell this story together. You're unaware of this, but we will. Let's pretend it was the 1500s and you and I were the only two single people in a village. Guess what? We got married. It didn't matter if I you know, was missing three teeth and, and a left foot and had no hair. We got married because that was the only option you had. Now that dynamic changes... If in this same village, Shelly, you're the princess of of the wealthy landowner and there's 50 men who are all eligible bachelors, that is a different supply chain issue than what we're dealing with. But up until this point, geography was binding that. The other 49 men who weren't going to marry Shelly either decided not to get married or they had to go somewhere else. As you fast forward, now Shelly and I are out at a bar or church, wherever you're going to meet people. The opportunities are bigger because you're able to travel. I can see a hundred single people or a thousand single people over a period of time. And, And that's great, but I'm still bound by geography. Then the internet happens. Now I can date anyone anywhere. 
The same thing happened to manufacturing. Again, I grew up without the internet. The internet hits, I can now get a part made anywhere. I'm not contingent on going to the machine shop or the kitting facility around the street. I can go get that made in China or California if I'm in New York and have it shipped in three days. It's the same thing we're having now. Pre-COVID, what happened was geography was the binding effect in talent acquisition. If you wanted to work for Dell, you moved to Austin, Texas. If you wanted to work for Coca-Cola, you moved to Atlanta. If you wanted to work for corporate. If you lived in Indianapolis, you had to go work for a company that was there or you moved. That changed overnight. If you think about what all the job boards are doing and what has happened historically before COVID, back to dating to some extent, the job boards were the ladies and ladies night. People showed up because candidates followed the jobs. And overnight that shifted. Jobs and in turn companies now have to follow the candidates because they're no longer bound by geography. Now, that's a really good thing for employers, I think, and it's a very good thing for candidates. However, no one knows how to deal with that. So what the job boards have decided to do is become Tinder, right? I have so many options based on geography. I just get to swipe right or swipe left. I don't have this level of commitment. And what I can do is not a plum pitch, but we're able to, to match people on if they'll be happy, fulfilled, and thrive in a role. So we're the latitude to, let's say, a hard skills longitude. Your e-harmony. Re-harmony. <laughs> I think that's Your a e-harmony, they're, sure. twin, they're Tinder. Right? Got it. So what ends up happening is because with Tinder, you can go on 50 dates in a year, candidates are looking at all the jobs available in any geography, and they're like, hell, I'm just going to take this job. I'm going to work there for 90 days, and if I don't like it, I'm going to go find another job. They're doing this speed dating without really having enough data. And what the job boards are doing is they're making it worse with easy apply and one click apply, right? Because I'm just going to say, hey, anybody who'll date me, I'll ask. And chances are somebody will say yes. And and that is exactly what happened with manufacturing. And it, it changed the whole world. It's what happened with dating. And it changed the whole world. Right. So Shelly mm-hmm. doesn't have to marry the bald guy with one foot and no teeth. She now has other options. You know, if I go to a grocery store and I'm looking for mustard, there's 50 mustards. So, okay. Well, I can make a decision. But if you have seven aisles of mustard, that's what's happening to candidates now. There's so many options and it's so easy to apply. And every employer thinks I don't want to put any gating function to have candidates screen themselves out because I need more of them. They're wrong. You actually need less. You just need the right ones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's my soapbox for the day. Wow. There's a lot in there, Jason. The Seven Isles of Mustard. I think that's uh, probably going to be our show title. Okay. But I get what you're saying. You're absolutely right. And I've always believed that there's lots of people out there, but it's the matching. It absolutely is. And I know there's this belief that people have just vaporized, or maybe there's been the rapture <laughs> that people will just sure. uh, be taken away off this earth. And maybe the rapture happened and that's where all of our hospitality workers went. I mean, I can tell you where they went and somewhere else. You know, it's, uh, exactly. As somebody who's familiar yeah. with the story of the rapture. Yeah. It's not that companies had all the power. Now they have none and they don't want to admit that. Mm-hmm. Let's say I was a hairdresser and, and I went and got my cosmetology degree and I went to work at a hair salon and I made 35 grand a year and worked horrible hours. I was treated like crap for my boss and most of my customers. But that's the job I could get because again, the employer was still the center of the universe. 
COVID hits. I wish I could have gone to work for Comcast or Spectrum or go work in a call center or do all those things, but I didn't because I didn't have a college degree and I didn't have experience. You know, as the great resignation happened, everyone went, we'll hire you. You can go work at Scotiabank right now in a retail bank with just a high school degree. Mm-hmm. Yet those same people are applying to, you know, fast food or hospitality. So those people went, well, now's my opportunity to go get a nine to five to double my pay to get better benefits. They just got better jobs. And they got jobs that they're more fulfilled in and are probably a better match for them and are going to help them in their career. Because companies still want to be the center of the universe, which is why they don't want flexibility and they're trying to bring a lot of people back to the office, and they don't want to give up that power, and many of them haven't even realized it, they're trying to solve it the wrong way. Yeah. But I do think some people have just disappeared and entertain me here. We've seen the data. Women have left the workforce at a pace that we have never seen. And they haven't come back at the same pace. And we know that they've changed how they look for jobs. They're now focused more on flexibility than they are on stability. They've gone into the gig economy, which is a completely new sector of jobs that never existed before. We did see the boomers disappear from the workforce because they finally retired and really the pandemic forced it. So I agree with you. The power has shifted. And I think we will see this power shift again, probably in 10 years. There's not going to be enough jobs for the population that we have because of automations. But yes, there is a shift. But the data is showing for every person that's unemployed right now in the US, there's 1.9 jobs available to them if we take how many postings are there. We know that people are unemployed doesn't mean they can actually work. When you're at 3 to 4% unemployment, you're basically at zero. There's just a fluctuation of the whole market and how the supply chain, to your earlier point, has just shifted. shifted. And nobody is looking at the supply chain logistics. And what we're dealing with now is somebody who grew up in procurement and supply chain in the manufacturing world. We have a supply chain disruption, but it, it's not that it's broken. The, some of the people went home but you can always get people to come back if you're speaking the right language. If you said to your example search, all those women are home, you can work nine to five every day at an office. They're going to say no, because they got used to taking care of their kids. Their family got used to working on one income. This goes for men as well. It's not just women, right? It could could be the opposite way. But if you said, hey, work your own hours and all we care is that the job gets done, even if you're doing it at two in the morning, those people will come back to work. And I slightly disagree with you. I think your point's accurate, but the we're going to have less jobs, maybe from uh, an economic perspective, but the majority of jobs that will exist when my daughters hit the workforce have never even been created or ever existed today. So those jobs are going to shift, right? Part of your job, both of you, is you're a podcaster. That didn't exist when you were kids. Right now, there's all these other jobs that are going to come. They may be different types of jobs, but their supply chain always writes itself. It's those early on adopters who have either prepared for supply chain disruptions, unlike the US, hence the baby formula problem we have, or they can take advantage of it before other people. They really rise to the top versus the competitors. And what people just aren't realizing now is your great employees today are everyone else's great candidates. And you're just not doing a good job realizing that you're trying to keep filling the bucket, but you didn't patch the hole to keep the people you have. Well, let's talk about that. I want to jump into the next insight because it ties in perfectly. We don't talk a lot about internal mobility when it comes to talent acquisition. We see it as a nature challenge. And 
we're starting to have those discussions more because there is a lot of frustrations with candidates is they're not getting promoted internally, even if the need is there. There is a sense from a lot of hiring managers that the person that is external is going to be a better employee or better fit for that role. And it's creating confusion, frustration, and we're seeing people shift jobs way quicker than we ever seen it. The latest data is two and a half years. If we go back 30 years, are you kidding me? Two and a half years would be seen as a crime. My dad worked at the same company for 45 years and he retired there. I don't even tell him when I change jobs anymore because I think he'll have a heart attack just understanding the basics of this is how the economy works. But we have failed on internal mobility and I'm going to blame it on HR. I'm going to blame it on hiring managers and I'm going to make the case that Talent acquisition needs to be way more involved into internal mobility than it is now and see it as a source of sourcing candidates. A lot of organizations are treating internal mobility a little bit different. I'll give you an example, and this happened to me very early in my career. There was this role that was perfect for me. And because I was excelling in the role that I was, I was not able to apply for that role that would have given me my career growth, everything that I was looking for, because my manager saw an issue of having to replace me thinking, I'm going to keep him for that minimum two years in that role before I'll let him go apply for another role. And this was driven by policy. This was driven by HR that cares about compliance and equity across the board. So what did I end up doing? I ended up quitting that job and going to another competitor that had exactly the same job that I wanted. A lot of people are looking at that. I'll give you the data. Right now, 70% of companies in the last year have increased their investment in internal mobility. And this is compared just two years ago, 58%, 12-point jump. Putting all of that in perspective, Shelly, want to get your take. Are we fucking up on internal mobility? Is it HR's fault? And it should it be in talent acquisition? I think there's a bit of an arm wrestle going on here. Is talent acquisition responsible for all talent? within the organization looking three to five years out? Or are we just responding to open positions? Because you're right. Traditionally, once talent acquisition brought them in the door, new hire, orientation, onboarding, the day-to-day management of that person is their leader. And then HR puts policies in place that ensure that the company is sustainable. So it is an arm wrestle between HR and talent acquisition. Does TA want it? First of all, do they want that responsibility of internal mobility? Because I held the position for five years of an organization that said, oh, no, we look internal first. But getting any sort of feedback and being able to give it to that internal employee, there was such fear around it. Because if you said no, then you disengage them, right? If you have a fair internal process that says we are going to exhaust all internal talent, if the hiring leader has set the bar to say, no, no, I need somebody who's got five years experience specifically doing these tasks. The reason an internal person wants it is to learn those tasks. That's the whole point. Unless companies completely shift why they're doing it and how they choose people for their potential hiring leaders still hold all the cards. They're the ones that decide, no, no, you must have this many years experience doing whatever. And that's maybe why it's a snake pit for talent acquisition to step into. Can you really win? 
I think good TA leaders will push back and say, you need to change your requirements, or obviously you don't need to fill this job. And if you do have strong leadership, those conversations will happen. Business leaders, they hold all the power. It's their budget. Unless they see talent acquisition as an investment into the organization and you're treated as a revenue generating part of the organization, most companies, that's not the case. You are overhead you are expensive and my part of the business makes the money. Well, so you will do what I say. We have talked about cultural. this and, and that's our fault. That's okay. talent acquisition's fault because we have not done a good job of building our business case and leveraging data to showcase why we are revenue generating. I buy what you're saying. I just don't buy that argument that it's never going to happen. Jason, want to get your take. Internal mobility overall, what are you seeing in the market? So I thought the last one was a soapbox, but I was wrong. So as a tool that both bridges talent acquisition and talent management, and as somebody, as a CRO who bridges marketing and sales, I don't think it's TA's fault. I don't think it's the hiring manager's fault. I think it's the CEO's fault. Okay. I think people are the most important asset that a company has. And really good people build really good companies and really bad people can crush really good companies. So if a CEO has not prioritized bridging the gap between talent acquisition and talent management, put HR aside for a minute, I think that's a separate function. HR has really become much more about risk mitigation for the business than it is about human resources. Not their fault. It's just what it is. The sales and marketing gap, Jen, who ran marketing at Pando, her and I were attached at the hip, even though we were peers. When we walked into a room, we sat next to each other, not across from each other and folded our arms and looked at each other and meet right? It's no different than talent acquisition and talent management. And it's no different to the dating example. I don't go pick somebody who's not a good fit, marry them and say, I'll fix them later. And that's what's happening with talent acquisition and talent management is there's this, I just need people, again, not their fault. I just need people. I'll let talent management worry about them once I get them in. So when you start focusing on human potential, both as talent acquisition is bringing them in, but as talent management is moving it, the CEO needs to step in and say, people come first. Serge, if this person's working for you and they're a better fit here, it's going to cost me X amounts to replace that person. You need a transition plan. Go move. Like I can use us as an example. This is a real person. She was an underwriter at a big insurance company and we have all her human potential. That's what we do. We also know as you get plumbed, as we'll say, we know what her leadership potential is. And she knew she did not want to be a leader and she wouldn't frankly be good at, but her natural progression was to lead a team of underwriters. They rediscovered her as part of internal mobility and said, she's also a 96 out of hundred match for a product manager in another individual contributor role. They asked her, would you like to do this? She said, yes. If not, she would have just left to go do the next thing, not knowing why she was doing the next thing yeah. with no data. She didn't have the hard skills to be a product manager. She had the human DNA to do it. So she spent months shadowing, learning everything she could. And she was outperforming other product managers in six months who have been doing it their whole career. All she would have done is left and they would have said, oh, good riddance. We'll go bring somebody else in. Instead, they have this super loyal employee, but that needs to start at the very beginning of the process. So if you can identify what's going to make somebody happy, fulfilled, and thrive in their role, 
Number one, those skills are four times more predictive of success on the job than a resume. They're going to stay there longer. The tenure tends to be 2x. The struggle here is most companies don't give a shit if people are happy. But I can make the economic argument that they should. Just in the US, the number is $550 billion is wasted for employees who are doing their job, but not 100% engaged. So they're doing their job, but they're not 100% engaged. $550 billion. Crazy, yeah? Jason, really good points. Love the soapbox. I do want to jump into our next recruitment insight. And and Shelly, I'm going to let you introduce this one because I've never seen someone lie as much as you do. And I think it fits perfectly. (laughs) This was a great article by Lori Rubin. I love her book. I love listening to her podcast. She published this article. You know, maybe it's a bit of a an eye catcher to call it the five lies that we tell each other. Because is it a lie or are we finessing the truth? My perspective has always been this, is the day that I approach an interview or approach a candidate with trying to catch them in lies, I think it's the day we should maybe not be in recruiting. Because if you become that cynical that you believe everybody lies nobody's telling the truth. I don't know if you really belong in recruitment because we've talked about this, I think in the last few episodes in one form or another, that if you're not well-suited to being in recruitment, what quality of applicants are you going to bring to the organization? But there was some fun things in Lori's article here that is probably true that when you ask someone, I think it's incumbent upon a recruiter in how you ask a question as to whether or not you are begging for fabrication. What question did you ask them and how did you ask it? Why are you smirking, Serge? I think you're about to explode. Um, I love how not cynical you are. Like, I want to believe the best in everyone, and I think it's a good thing. But let's not lie to ourselves and say there's not white lies or common lies. Well, it's finesse, right? Well, I don't see it as finesse. We're playing this game. So let me ask you this, Search. How many times has a friend said, what should I say in an interview when I was fired from my last job? Yeah. Like, how do I cover that when they ask me, right? We help construct a story that most people will swallow. But they don't come right out and say, I was fired because the the boss and I just couldn't see eye to eye or I refused to do what they asked me to do. How many people really have their story straight when they were fired? Like of the thousands of people that I have interviewed in my career, and I ask every time, so tell me why you left that role. It's very rare that, that people come right out and say, I was fired. Isn't that the problem though? The whole point of this article in my mind is we're lying to each other. The employers are as bad. Most of our employer branding and what we have on our site is BS. So we're starting off with a lie as an employer. Then we are digging deeper in that lie as we're interviewing. And candidates will ask us, like, why is this such a great place to work? We're going to give them the corporate line of why it's a good place and why we have really good culture. And I've seen this firsthand where the recruiter who recruited me two weeks after they quit the job and go to another job. And it makes me question like, yeah, okay. A lot of that was bullshit, but we lie about our culture. We lie about little things like saying, I'm going to keep your resume on file. I'm not going to keep your resume on file. Maybe that <laughs> does happen and, and I might have it on file, but I'm never going to go back to look at it. 
And we lied to them saying, I'm going to get back to you really quickly. In some cases, we can't based on volume and everything that's going on. So we're playing a ruse. Candidates are lying to us because they have to, because as a candidate, if I told you I got fired because I was late to work every three days, you're automatically disqualified. So what are you going to do? You're going to create a story that lines up to what the interviewer wants to happen. And similar, if we said to a candidate saying, this culture here sucks, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and you'll never hear from me again. <laughs> so Jason, a little bit of a rant, not a soapbox, but what's your overall take? Are we lying to ourselves to think that we're not lying to ourselves right now? No, I think there's a ton of lying going on. I'll look at it through two perspectives. I would so much love it if somebody who I was interviewing did that example. Hey, I was fired. I was late every three days. That doesn't mean I would disqualify them. Actually, that level of candor, I would greatly appreciate. Now, my follow-up questions would be different. There's a lot of that, but that's an individual leader's perspective. And you can ask a lot of people on my teams, like my level of candor, it's always respectful, but it's just brutally honest. And I think people want that. As you start looking at it from a corporate perspective, not to victim blame here, but I think it's the company's problem and a cultural problem why candidates feel that they have to lie. You know that everyone in the office is in shorts and flip-flops, but yet they show up with a student tie on for an interview. Why? To me, that's nonsense. Yes, it shows a level of respect, but it doesn't actually represent what the job is going to be or what people are doing. It goes back to even the job description to me. So if you're writing a job description that says, we want somebody who's a nine out of 10 out of teamwork, and you ask the person, you know what they're going to say? I'm great at teamwork. Do you know what Plum Data says? Most people suck at teamwork. Right. That doesn't mean you're disqualified at the job because not everybody can be good at everything. But I need to manage you differently if you're bad at teamwork. But instead, you're going to come in and go, I'm really good at teamwork. Or this is how much money I made. If there was just brutal transparency on both sides, the world would be a significantly better place. In closing, I still believe it goes back to don't ask stupid questions. And I love your example of teamwork, Jason. Oh my God. If I had a dollar for every time uh, a company said, oh, they must be a good team player, yet they have no definition of what that looks like. Or what do we ask somebody in order to determine whether or not they're a team player? That's what I mean by we're setting up the candidate to finesse their way through the answer. So I'm with you on that. Do people lie? I think we need to own it. We need to own the fact that you're still using interview questions that are behavioral, descriptive, and designed in 1972. You know what? Up your game on how you go about the interview and selection process. That's what I have to say about that. I, I agree. And there's enough science out there now and technology to actually quantify both sides yes. to say, is teamwork important in this role? And also you as a human Not are you good or bad at teamwork, that's not what it should do, but is teamwork something that comes naturally to you? Do you need coping mechanisms to be better at it? If you did teamwork 100% of the time all day, you'd be drained, which means you would hate your job and quit versus I need to be exposed to teamwork every now and then, and I'm okay with it. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, we've covered a lot. We've talked a lot. So I'm going to shut it down right now. Jason, (laughs) I really appreciate you coming on and People have heard you. You're a legend. I'm going to elevate you to that status or maybe iconic. 
people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way uh, for people to reach out? Yeah, you can do it through LinkedIn. It's just Jason Putnam. I'm pretty active on there. Come check out at Plum. If you want to email me, I'm happy at jason.putnam, which is P-U-T-N-A-M at plum.io. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.